As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. As confused as we are, but never confused, is Jay Bryson, Chief Economist at Wells Fargo. Jay, wonderful to have you with us. I think that states the confusion right now. Does Wells Fargo have clarity on what the American consumer is doing? Um, clarity, that's a strong word, Tom. But um, I guess in general, when I, when I stand back and I look at everything here, there has been some deceleration in consumer spending. Consumer spending in the first quarter in real terms grew over 4% annualized. We're just not going to get that in the second quarter. We came into the second quarter with some deceleration. These numbers that you know, Mike just talked about, I mean, you know, on, on, on balance, I think you know, they're okay. Uh, but in general, it doesn't change the big story that there has been some deceleration acceleration in terms of consumer spending out there. Jay, how much has the overall discussion been completely distorted by the auto sector? How much the prices just shot upwards in the aftermath of the pandemic and now are coming down and resetting, especially as auto loan rates are getting so high? How much is that behind all of the confusion? Well, at least I wouldn't say it's a, it's a huge part of it. I mean, so if you break down consumer spending, you know, roughly two-thirds of consumer spending is going to be on services. And the other third is split roughly equally between non-durable goods, so that would be like clothing and shoes, et cetera, and then durable goods, what component of that is autos. So it moves things around on the margin. But again, you know, the big driver of consumer spending growth in the economy is services. And I think that has been, in some sense, more more distorting over the last three years, you know, in the sense of when the economy was shut down, the service sector was shut down. And then that came roaring back last year as the economy opened up with all this pent up demand for spending. And a lot of that now is pr pretty much behind us right now. So we hopefully are getting to the point where things, you know, the aftershocks of the pandemic in terms of the economy are now settling out. Okay, so the aftershocks are settling out. What is the new economic trajectory when it comes to inflation? Is it back to what we saw previously? Or is it something different, especially if people are getting paid more and they're not pushing back as significantly as some would like with respect to how much prices can keep going up? Well, you know, I may differ a little bit on that. I mean, I think you are seeing some signs of that right now. I mean, we are seeing it in terms of deceleration in terms of inflation out there. Um, it's still slowly coming through in the service sector. But if you look at the you know, rate of change over the last three months, you're seeing less service sector inflation as well. I mean, our view here is that we are heading back towards 2%. Now, 
It's not going to be right away. It's going to take a little bit of time. And part of that is predicated on some economic softness, i.e. a mild recession early next year. But, you know, I, I think these 9, 10 percent sort of numbers that we saw, or even 5 percent, I think that's the thing of the past. And I think we're heading right. back towards a 2 percent <clears throat> sort of uh, error. Jay, on the international basis here, and after the clumsiness that we see here of American retail analysis, do you have a clue what the Chinese consumer's doing? I mean, we sit well, there, guys like you have to pontificate and say, yeah, this, this, this. But do we really know what the Chinese consumer's doing? So, you know, we started this with Lisa saying, you know, what's your view with all this noise in the United States? Now, now square that when you talk with China and just in terms of the, uh, the data lapse and, and gaps and you got to take it with a grain of salt uh, sort of stuff. But it does seem like, you know, things in China are also kind of slowing down as well. You got this really lousy GDP number the other day. And I think that's going to continue um, going forward. What we do know is the Chinese consumers are, are you know, they mm -hmm. still have a very, very high savings rate. Um, you know, they're still very concerned about health care. You just don't have the health care system in China as you do in many Western sort of company, uh, countries. And so that keeps the savings rate right. in China elevated um, over there. Jay, to go to micro here, and this is the, your team under you working on us, including Sarah Hunt, the, the retail sales control group, X what? X, X Red Sox tickets, Mike, X building materials, X autos, X this, X that. Do you get value out of a buoyant control group for 60 days, Jay? I, you know, there's obviously there's there's some information um, in there, Tom. But, you know, again, these are nominal sort of numbers. And at the end of the day, what we economists are more concerned about is real. And so you have to deflate that by, you know, some things that are in the CPI. Um, and again, as I said earlier, when you look at overall retail spending, it's roughly a third of, of the U.S. Of, of spending. You know, the big component is the service one. So what we pay much more attention to is the numbers that we're going to get at the end of the month and the personal income and spending. That's when you get the service sector components and, and you get real numbers as well. So just uh, putting this all together, are you increasingly in the soft landing camp with this being a soft landing type of retail sales number? So, Lisa, we've been in the, uh, you know, it depends on what your definition of a hard landing is, but we've been in a recession camp now for about a year. And, and you know, we've had to push that, that call increasingly back out. I, I would say right now, if you hold a gun to my head, you say, what's the probability of a recession in the next 12 months? I would still say it's roughly uh, it's still roughly 60%. I mean, what's going to happen as we go forward <clears throat> is the inf inflation is coming down, okay? The Fed, no one thinks the Fed's going to be cutting anytime soon. So what's going to happen in the months coming is you're going to get a mm -hmm. passive tightening of monetary policy as the real rate drifts higher and higher. So in order to have a, quote, soft landing here, I think the Fed needs to be still very adept in terms of monetary policy later this year as inflation comes down. Dr. Bryson, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Jay Bryson leading all of economics at Wells Fargo. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. 
Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now, Amy Wu Silverman, the head of derivative strategy over at RBC Capital Markets. Amy, wonderful to have you with us on the program. We've had the bank earnings over the last week. The banks have lagged what's happened with tech. Pretty much everything has. Tech has absolutely dominated year today. Amy, I'm sure you feel the same question that we ask repeatedly over the last several months. Can this rally broaden out? Do you think it can? I do, John. I actually think you are seeing that already in the options market. You know, we kind of take that metric of call exuberance, you know, where are folks buying single stock call options? And of course, that was in your NVIDIA's and your Apple's and your Google's, not too surprisingly, a couple of weeks ago. But we've really seen that expanded not only to S&P, but also to IWM names and also to smaller and mid-cap names. And that's kind of happening on a much broader basis than it was before. Amy, let's cut to the wheelhouse. That's what everybody on Global Wall Street wants to know from Amy with Silverman. What are the cross moments saying right now, the four dynamics of the option space? And critically, to get a little bit jargony here, what does skew do right now? You know, Tom, it's it's doing a whole lot of nothing. And I always say memory is really short in the options market, and it's gotten even shorter. So the folks who have had on, you know, long put trades, hedging trades, they've been burned. The best strategy year to date when you back test every option strategy has been to be long the S&P 500. So no option strategy year to date has actually just beaten being long the S&P. And, you know, you've seen that kind of taken to heart in the VIX levels and the volatility suppression that we've seen. Right now, you said that you do expect the rally to broaden out. What are you looking at specifically for the areas to benefit the most in this broadening at a time when some people still are expecting consumers to stop spending as much? Yeah, interesting question, Lisa. And I think you know, it goes back to all these rotation trades that I think investors had wanted to put on even, you know, six months ago, even after the October bottom, which is value versus growth, or, you know, finally small mid cap versus large cap cyclicals, those those type of areas. You know, one thing I will say as a caveat is, I've asked investors why it couldn't be the case that we could just simply have a parallel rally, you know, so mega cap tech doesn't necessarily get hurt. But we just simply broaden the rally because one is sort of a secular drive of AI and the other is more of an economic recovery story. And, and to be clear to my earlier point, you know, we're not seeing less bullish positioning in tech. It's simply that that bu- bullish positioning has widened out a bit. 
This is the reason why some people are saying, okay, let's just hold on a second before everyone gets over their skis in the soft landing type of narrative. Because if you look at the data, more people are invested than have been in equities going back for quite a while. We see a much more overweight suddenly in market technicals. At what point does that become a concerning sign to you? Yep, I, I watch this too, because I do think you know, part of the story from the beginning of the year, Lisa, was that there had to be this catch-up trade, right? Well, one of the reasons I think we thought that positioning would get even broader was there are just folks who at the index level had to catch up to the momentum you were seeing from seven names contributing so much to return. Now, from a positioning perspective, we are in a much better shape. But the question is, is there even more to go? I think there is if the rally becomes broader. And the, the second thing is, you know, you get these kind of technical rebalances, the technical rebalance for the NASDAQ, for instance, which will give folks who really couldn't participate in that narrow breadth to have some excuse to continue to do that widening breadth. Does, for, does diversification pay here, Amy, or is it better to place larger focused bets so, Tom, it's interesting because we always think about that from a correlation perspective. And correlation has been really, really low on a realized yeah. level and implied level because it's been, you know, tech going this way and then everything else going the other way. The one thing I point to folks is, look, if we get more things widening out and that breadth going, you know, even larger then maybe that picks up the correlation component of index volatility. So to your question, maybe the reason volatility goes up and we see a few points stick higher is actually because of that widening of breath, which actually makes your correlation component what kicks the vol into higher gear. Interesting. Amy, thank you. Amy, Will Silverman there of RBC Capital Markets. Mars is different than the others, and we talk to them all and have an immense respect, for example, the oil microeconomics of Goldman Sachs and Allegiant Global Sense of Bank of America, maybe what we see from Emerita Sen over in London. And then there's Edward Morse. Yeah, he's global head of commodities research at Citigroup, but he does geopolitics and the larger view better than anyone. Dr. Morse joins us this morning. Ed Morse, I'm going to rip up the script here, and you allude to it in your research note. We are having a climate change 2023 globally to beat the ban. Someone as giant as Michael Mann is really, really intense about this is a new climate change. How do you, with all of your expertise, interpret the global warming we're observing? Uh, well, it certainly has uh, upended a lot of expectations. Uh, the world has decided to rely significantly more on solar and wind uh, and on water. And part of the climate change process that we're seeing is disrupting that. The sun is being impacted by wildfires. Uh, the rain is not happening in the places that we need it. It's happening in where places that we don't want it. Um, and the wind stops blowing at the wrong time. So uh, we are really in a uh, power gen crisis that is global um, and it's not gonna stop anytime soon. What will that do to price of oil and off the price of supply and demand dynamics? Well, the price of oil is still essentially that based on a, a transportation fuel market, not on a power fuel market. Part of the climate change surprise in 2021, reinforced by both climate change and the Russia-Ukraine war in 2022, is that we had a surge in, uh, in natural gas prices and it made 
diesel more expensive because there was fuel switching to meet the ban between natural gas and diesel. So that's the first time that we've seen a spillover effect from the power gen market into the transportation fuel market. And it's not going to be the last time that that's happened. But that separation that we used to think of as automatic is no longer uh, is no longer automatic. And uh, when we get into the next crunch on that gas, which might well be in 2024, uh, we might see that happening again. Uh, meanwhile, uh, between the obstacles to invest in fossil fuels and the reduction in demand that we're seeing, that spells volatility ahead. It spells a market which will be moving between supply, shortage and supply, uh, oversupply on the oil side uh, from year to year. And the oversupply won't be big enough to bred us down to $20, let alone negative prices. And the undersupply won't be big enough to get us over 100. But it will mean volatility in the market is going to be there as we go through uh, decades of an energy transition. So what's the range then? The band is from 60 to $100 a barrel? Uh, I'd say there's a soft put at around 70 at the moment. Uh, that soft put exists uh, not only because uh, we have OPEC, which really doesn't want oil below 70, uh, and are proven to be able to take action, but we have the U.S., which has basically announced that it will be more aggressive about filling the strategic stockpile. Uh, when we get to 70, we have China that has, since the 2008-9 great financial crisis, decided to build inventories when prices are low and to use those inventories when prices are high. So I think we have a soft put at the moment, uh, higher than 60 and maybe at the 70 level. On the upper side, you never really know what happens. There are wild cards. Hurricanes are certainly wild cards. Uh, all we need is two, uh, three, four or five category hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and we get uh, damage like Hurricane Harvey or uh, Rita and Katrina year where uh, refineries are out for four, five, or six months. The U.S. is the heart of the global fossil fuel market. The U.S. Gulf Coast is the largest contributor to combined oil and gas in the world. Yeah. Uh, we are between oil, crude, and petroleum products, now seeing nine or 10 million barrels a day of exports, most of that coming out of the Gulf Coast. And uh, that's larger than the total production of either Russia or Saudi Arabia, and we're seeing um, 15 BCF a day of natural gas coming out of the U.S. Gulf Coast. Flooding can knock all of that out for a while. So we have uh, that wild card sitting there. But without the wild card, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable thinking 90 is a real ceiling uh, for uh, whatever we see on the tightness side of oil for the time being. Ed, where does a soft landing versus a hard landing fit in from the U.S.? You said we haven't really priced in something of a more honest recession in the U.S., which a lot of people are discounting altogether. What makes you think we shouldn't? Well, partly because of my colleagues, Veronica and Andrew, who you were talking about earlier. And, you know, I believe what they say about uh, uh, about where economic growth is going. Uh, and I tend to believe people like Larry Summers. Uh, who are among those pushing for the hard landing uh, scenario. But uh, there's something secular going on as well. Uh, we had lower oil demand last year in the United States than we had the year before. And uh, that's why every measure on almost any product other than this category, what we call other. But we had less gasoline demand. We had less uh, diesel demand. Uh, we're seeing a pickup in gasoline demand this year 
uh, because people are taking vacations more than they did last year. But we're not at 2919 levels uh, yet, if we ever will be there again. We're really seeing a phenomenal structural shift, both in gasoline and diesel in the U.S. The diesel side of it is partly related to the efficiency of trucks. More importantly, there are two things structurally going on. If you look at uh, you know those of us living in New York and looking out on the street and seeing delivery vans, they're mostly fueled by cleaner energy than diesel. They're mostly fueled by either hybrid vehicles or electric vehicles or natural gas vehicles. So uh, that plus the actual drop in uh, in trade, we have you know a lower level of container ship movements since last September. We have onshoring uh, going on in the United States and in Europe uh, to take away from China what has been a significant part of their exports. We're seeing a slowdown in trade, which means a slowdown in trucks going back and forth to ports between the change in the fuel stock and the change in the trade environment. That's a really permanent factor in the, in the market. On the gasoline side, one of the biggest issues is, of course, the increase in fuel efficiency. And we didn't expect the increase in fuel efficiency that we've seen, but certainly during three years in which we had supply chain problems in the auto industry, auto manufacturers were selling either the most fuel efficient and therefore the most expensive ICE, ICE vehicles they had or selling more electric vehicles. And the fuel efficiency of the U.S. has gone up a lot in the last three years. And on top of that, we're having a record amount of retirements. And with that, fewer people with two or three and going to more people with one or two cars. And they're driving this, even with the labor market statistics. So balancing that are, are other factors. And uh, I, I think we're very close to the U.S. joining China and uh, Europe in yeah. reaching oil demand coming sooner than most people expect. Ed, we've got to leave it there. Fantastic assessment analysis on the commodity intensiveness of economic growth. Ed Morse there of City. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Gregory Peters is cool, calm, and collected coat. 
CIO at PGM Fixed Income right now. Greg, if I defined a given aggregate index is in between here, maybe on a technical basis, it's a pennant formation. Which way is price going to break? Are we going to get higher price, lower yield, or the other way around? I think it's the other way around. If you look at what's going on in the market, the market is very excited around you know policy rates peaking. Uh, but if you see what's embedded in the future price, there's talk about soft landing, uh, inflation coming down, and then on top of it, you have you know, a pretty substantial rate cut. So those two factors are somewhat confusing to me, right? If the economy continues to actually chug along here, we avoid a recession, I'm not necessarily sure why forward rate should be 200 basis points lower than they are today. I, I look at where rates are and what is going to give way from where you sit, how will issuance change given price down, yield up? What will be the spirit of the market? Well, what we found over the past you know, uh, couple of years is that uh, there's not a lot of uh, price sensitivity here. Uh, uh, corporates will issue uh, uh, when they have to. Uh, there's a constant desire to issue. So um, I don't really worry about that factor uh, too much, um, you know, honestly. So... You know, to me, I think it's uh, steady as you go. So I think it's a very good environment for fixed income, for sure. But at the same time, some of the pricing uh, confuses me. Okay, let's talk about that, Greg, particularly in investment grade. Why do you think that prices are just too high? Well, it's not so much. Well, it's just it's pricing in a soft landing, which I think should be the model <laughs> outcome. But the risks are still, you know, pretty elevated. And so I look at, you know, IG credit spreads, you know, index level just above 125 basis points. You know, that's well below the long-term average, long-term mean. You know, high yield is sub 400 basis points. So, so you're not getting paid a lot from a spread premium standpoint vis-a-vis uh, the risk out there. Uh, but you know, the overall yield environment uh, is a fantastic one, and I think that will continue to drive flows into fixed income. Uh, it makes fixed income a very attractive place uh, as we're back to the roll and carry days, which I think is the hallmark of fixed income investing. Typically, after banks report earnings, they issue a slew of bonds. We saw Wells Fargo float an offering yesterday with an eight handle offering more than 8% yield. It was on a subordinate bond with uh, equity-like features. Is this a type of asset that you want to own? Are you looking to the big banks and saying, I'm a buyer? Yeah, so the key point there is equity-like features, right? So I, uh, I've i always been of the mind, we've always been of the mind that that's a, a poor risk. Uh, you have fixed income type of yield with uh, you know equity optionality, so the, the option is always against you. So never really like that part of the market, you know, known as the cocoa part of the market. Um, but uh, the senior, place looks very attractive to us uh, and continues to be. So, uh, you know, the money center banks, as we call them, um, are a very attractive investments in fixed income and continue to be one of our favorite places to play uh, in investment grade corporates. The theme with price down, Greg Peters, is I'm going to get a coupon along the way. I get that rationalization. But as a general statement out one year, or dare I say out of PGM short term, three years, are you going to clip a coupon or are you going to invest out three years for total return? I still believe that given the shape of the curve, uh, given the attractive nature of the front end, um, 
to me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to uh, go out um, in duration. So I think front-end carry, just called three years in, in Tom, a very attractive place to play. So I don't really see the need to kind of uh, reach, right? I think investors are still very much in the reach for yield environment, you know, going back pre-pandemic. And the truth of the matter is you don't need to reach now, right? It's right in front of you. So there's no reason to take uh, you know, unnecessary amount of credit risk or, uh, or duration risk at this point in time. Does this mean that you don't necessarily buy into the soft landing narrative or just that it doesn't matter whether there's a soft landing or a hard landing, you're going for the sure thing? Well, so I mean, you go to the soft landing narrative. So I don't understand, you know, you know this is the price confusion in my mind. Uh, I don't understand if you believe in a soft landing, why the Fed would be cutting 200 basis points at the same time over the next you know, year or so. So to me, that's the incongruency in the market. So if you actually do get a soft landing, right, I think front end yields will remain pretty sticky. So maybe there's a little cuts you know, into the market. But that should help normalize the curve, which means, you know, the inversion starts to normalize. And that means kind of higher yields across the curve. So that's how I see it, actually. Greg, one of the best. Always a privilege to listen to you. Greg Peters there of Pigeon Fixed Income. Christopher Marinak, Jenny Montgomery Scott. Thank you, Christopher, for taking time out from your clients uh, this morning. Is Morgan Stanley a bank Absolutely, sure. They they take they 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 make loans and take deposits. Their deposit costs rose a lot in this quarter, Tom. I mean, they had a hundred percent beta. If you look at the change in average deposit costs from uh, first quarter to second quarter, so that's forty-seven basis points, which is exactly what the average change in the Fed funds uh, rate was for the quarter. I am fascinated by the compare and contrast with the mystery of what we'll see tomorrow with Goldman Sachs. To begin that study, what's the key distinction here? of a Marcus-like free Morgan Stanley? Well, I think Morgan Stanley can get access to funds cheaper than what Marcus is paying. Marcus is the rate leader in the marketplace, and so that has a different spread component uh, at the bank level, and I think that's awfully important. I think there's less of an advantage at uh, Goldman on the cost of funds, and so that's one thing that most banks have. Um, and certainly Morgan Stanley does have an advantage in terms of borrowing and, and raising money cheaper than the uh, cost of Fed funds. As we parse through the results, and Shanali was great about pointing this out, at Bank of America, the average FICO score was 767, an incredibly high, very well-off kind of uh, customer base. We're seeing a similar type of suggestion in the numbers of Morgan Stanley. What does this mean for those who are not in the echelons of the upper tiers of income earners? Does this mean that they are not getting credit, or does that mean that they're going to the PNCs of the world, maybe the Western alliances? I think all those banks tend to have a higher FICO score in general. So I think, unfortunately, they're probably looking outside of the banking industry uh, and other sources, which really means that it's more expensive. I think that's the hard part. Um, the banks are bragging about having high FICO scores, and that kind of cuts both ways. It's good from a credit quality perspective, but it does make it difficult for certain borrowers to access uh, funds from a consumer standpoint. Right now, as you take a look at Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, who looks the best to you in navigating a pretty uncertain time? 
Well, Bank America has the best deposit base in the country, and so that gives them a leg up. I mean, they have access to consumer funds that are cheap, and they have a big advantage over Fed funds, as I mentioned earlier. I, I feel that you know they've got a lot going for them. Mm -hmm. They also have been a leader on on the digital build out. And JP Morgan has too, and you know those are two big engines right. on the whole transformation of the industry towards digital. Uh, that's going to continue to you know create a wider gulf between other banks in the uh, quarters ahead. Chris, in the zeitgeist of this July is a massive roll-up worldwide in asset management. Clearly, active management, but dare I say, also index passive management as well. Is Morgan Stanley one of the giant players that can take advantage of that roll-up, or do they have to grow and defend against the roll-up? Oh, I think they're in growth mode. I think if you go back to March and April when we had the explosion of uh, First Republic, they re uh, received several clients and teams of people. And I think that's going to bode them well. Even though they did not bid on the bank, they still had a lot of transactions uh, and new customers that have come in. And I think we're, that's going to become more apparent on the asset side in the months ahead. Shanali Basak is studying the succession plans as well. You're a student of it. Did, what kind of person should be taking over? A wealth manager, a banker, somebody from outside? I think you need one who can be a leader. At the end of the day, you need a person where he or she can really focus on how to lead an organization, bring in new clients, being able to be flexible when you have market volatility like we've already seen this year. Um, that's really is what it's about. I would be less about labels about whether they came from the investment side or the bank side. I think being able to lead a team of folks and, and grow the business in the in the next decade is is what I think is most important. Hey, Chris, appreciate you being with us this morning. Chris Maranak there of Jenny Montgomery Scott. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.